This podcast was made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are talking to Michael Finneran about breaking up and making up towards renewal and reconnection in drama research and practice. Michael recently ran a workshop at the Drama Australia Symposium called Renewal in Hobart, Tasmania. Please note this was not recorded in the studio, so the audio quality is not as high as it usually is. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Michael Finneran on Breaking Up and Making Up Towards Renewal and Reconnection in Drama Research and Practice. My name is Michael Finneran, and um, it's my great privilege and pleasure to represent the world here Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, to be be here at this Drama Australia gathering. Um, I first of all want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we think and talk and eat and celebrate and uh, you know after that incredibly moving uh, welcome country and the opening keynote um, one could not but be reflective and I suppose my reflection is that I also want to acknowledge my complicity um, and as a white European um, on behalf of my forebearers and um, many of whom served as the worker bees of the British Empire and their role in terms of invasion and dispossession of genocide. Um, I want to offer you a provocation. I've done an unusual thing in some respects. I've, I've, I've responded directly to the conference call. <laughs> and I want to offer you a, a, a provocation today um, around renewal and reconnection. But I suppose, given that I knew I was going to be one of the very, very few uh, international delegates here, I thought I might offer, perhaps, without implying any sense of parochialism on your part, I thought I might offer perhaps more of a global perspective, which is also in keeping with some of the work that I've been doing over the last number of years. You know, um, Kelly has, you know, how does one follow that intellectual tour de force? Um, but it's my great privilege to, to, to work with Kelly, and as she said, much of my thinking is also informed by the book that we're preparing at the moment. And I've spent much of the last week in dialogue with she, but also with my great friends Rachel Jacobs and Michael Anderson, both of whom have uh, prompted my thinking in many ways about what I'm about to offer you. So my, uh, my, my paper, my offering is in six parts. The first is the quixotic nature, nature of research, dealing with disconnection. So the call for papers for our gathering clearly um, impedes to seek renewal and reconnection through our research and drama. It clearly implies a deficit. Reconnection demands connection, but to what? For what reason and to what end? The antonyms of renewal are even more profound because they are destruction, exhaustion, and indeed impoverishment. These, you know, this reading of the Culver papers begs many questions. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that it was the intent of our conveners to be as abrupt in calling out these things, each of these things, uh, in this manner. However, it suits my purpose to play a little while in this dystopian perspective in order to tease out some things about dramatization. Ostensibly, again, as I read the call, Jane, you can tell me later if I'm right or wrong, mark me out of 10. Um, <laughs> the reconnection that perhaps might, might be most needed is that between research and practice. Um, but I will actually argue that a greater reconnection is needed, one with some of our fundamental theoretical frames and ideals. And I think this piggybacks nicely on what um, Kelly has been saying. 
So my paper today pr proposes a utilitarian phenomenological narrative. Sometimes research is utterly phenomenological in narrative nature. It's about naming the stuff that one sees taking place right around us in the world at this very moment in time. And my story, which is my narrative, is about the stuff that I see taking place around me. Here's what I see with regard to research and education. From perhaps, I'm about to go on sabbatical, so I think that, that induces a sense of weariness, but from perhaps some, somewhat of a weary vantage point in the world. I would argue, and I see, that drama education, the drama curriculum, is in trouble in numerous places. Most notably, um, on the island next to mine, and um, we like to say in Ireland at the moment, uh, clans to the left of me, Consulter maps if you're having any difficulty with that particular uh, um, But the uh, jokers on the right, forgive my, my apologies for any British people in the audience. Um, drama has almost disappeared from Britain. And Britain is not alone. Um, drama, I think, in Ireland is present but in different ways and is struggling for greater recognition. And I see that story mirrors throughout the world. So that's number one. Um, second observation is that I would argue that there is a paucity of perhaps established figures doing research in drama education. Please do not take that as any kind of a personalised insult. Um, and what I mean by that is I mean that very often I've been working um, on the editorship of, of uh, a journal called Research and Drama Education Ride for, for the last number of years. And very often a lot of the research that we're gathering in, and I know from talking to my fellow editors on ATR and NJ and so on and so forth, are from early career researchers, people who are starting out doing their MED and PhD thesis and so on and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. That is where it all starts. However, one does wonder where people disappear to in mid-career and later career. And that leads me leads me to my third point, which is that academics are leaving, university-based academics are leaving drama education and not being replaced. There's a brain drain directly linked to the curricular piece. I am one of them. I spent the early first 15 years of my academic career soldiering within a faculty of education, doing teacher education, mostly at primary level, but also early childhood. I now work within a school of drama and people studies, and I run a BA in um, an applied theatre. For a whole pile of different reasons, but nonetheless, I am an instance of what I am directly talking about. And my fourth point is, and this is a generalised and contentious claim, but I'm getting all the kind of naughty stuff out um, <laughs> at the top of the paper, but I'm going to make it nonetheless. Please be free to take me on over a cocktail um, uh, later on, you're fine. Um, I'm the visitor. Uh, but I perceive a tendency in a lot of the research that has gone on in drama education over the last number of years towards a certain intellectual regression. And what I mean by that is not in terms of the quality of analysis or thinking that's offered within the instances or the papers individually. What I mean by that is that our theoretical frame of reference seems to have bounced back. It seems to have bounced back to the 60s, to the 70s, and I suppose more, most recently um, I've read a, a new book by Matthew de Courcy, which I find argumentative and not in a good way on, on a whole number of levels on aesthetics in, in drama. Um, but you know, his frame of reference is Hepcut, Boal, and, and Bolton. And I'm thinking to myself, what's happened in the intervening 50 years? Where has all that research gone to? So these four things seem to me indicate a kind of a, a, a problem. Now, none of this is a new claim. Kathleen Burry, um, one from Canadian drama educator, wrote a book um, in 2000 claiming that the dramatic arts and education were indeed in crisis all the way back then. Section two, 
Reflections on the naive charm of 10 years ago. So this is the 10th anniversary of my friendship with Australia. Um, it's a friendship that has given me wonderful um, friends, uh, but also has afforded me many, many fantastic professional um, opportunities that I simply wouldn't have, have had on my small island. And those of you who are having may understand what I mean by that. The 10th anniversary was actually the, the, um, the occasion of the Ideary Conference hosted by Michael Anderson um, in the University of Sydney, during which Donald too delivered a very, very contentious, reflective keynote, I Met a Fella on the Stairs, which is published in that journal that I mentioned earlier, Roger. And it prompted, uh, for any of you who were there would remember, there was a lot of snarling conversations on staircases, there was a lot of quick beers being ordered at the bar, there was a lot of angry conversation because John offered a meta-analysis based on a sampling of the abstracts that had been provided by the attendees, and he offered a meta-analysis of the state of drama education research. It annoyed some people greatly, as indeed this talk may well do, remember the cocktail. Um, <laughs> but he identified in that paper a number of characteristics of what he perceived to be the desirable features of an emergent research paradigm over the coming years. He talked about the fact that in drama education research we needed to have studies that had useful and usable metrics. He talked about <laughs> a need for large-scale projects. Talked about the long-scale sustainability of what we do, and we all, I think all of us who are drama teachers, practitioners, artists, and so on and so forth, recognize the inherent awfulness of the one-off projects, the pilot project syndrome, as I like to call it at home, that you know peppers the arts. You know, something we get funded and then get parked up and 10 years later we're left back reinventing the wheel. Um, this next bullet pertains directly to what Kelly has just said, but he talked about the inclusion of participant voices. He talked about the need for more rigorous design and methodological uh, stances in our research projects and clear differentiation between advocacy, which of course we are all required to do because we all have to fight our corners with our sharp elbows <laughs> and research. And he talked about more comparative studies um, that were needed in drama education. And I would argue that actually an overview of the drama education research published in the interim period re revealed a few of these desires have been achieved. Mm -hmm. And in fact that we then have requests so much. So what has changed in the interim? Section three, social acceleration, the race apart. In explaining some of these changes, of course one cannot deal with drama education and slender isolation. We are actors. Um, in every sociocultural sense. As a phenomenologist, I'm not, but at this moment in time, I fully location and understand what we do in our classrooms, in our studios, and in our studies, and in our offices as governed by the prevailing social conditions. So Kelly and I have been struggling with neoliberalism and the germ over the course of the last week, and you know, talking about how uh, agendas of accountability and funding models um, and you know, transparency and all of the things that they bring have impacted upon drama. Some of this is born of that. Um, but in looking to this, I, I find a particular theoretical frame very, very useful, and that's one propounded by Hartmut Rosa. And his work is called Social Acceleration, New Theory of Modernity. I am a, an old-fashioned fan of modernity, it has to be said. And he talks about social acceleration as consisting of three um, particular strands of, of engagement. There's technical acceleration, there's the acceleration of social change and the acceleration of the pace of life. And cumulatively, these results in social acceleration. And I'll uh, just read some notes directly here, if I may. Modern society can be perceived as acceleration, as an acceleration society, insofar as the rates of growth, the quantity of produced commodities and services, the amount of transmitted messages and information units 
and the number of distances covered exceed the rate of acceleration of the given processes. Acceleration society is a society that is characterized by the simultaneous ability to cover processes faster in relation to time and the parallel qualitative rise of commodities, information, exchanges to be consumed, processed and communicated. This apparent paradox serves an explanatory purpose that on the one hand, time scarcity performs more, more speed and therefore drives the need for ever faster time-saving technological invention. And on the other hand, the tension between rates of growth and rates of acceleration essentially explains why we perceive the world as ever faster. The rhythms of education or democratic polity simply cannot keep pace with the real-time tempo of algorithms-driven financial capitalism. Rosa calls this temporal phenomenon, quote, the simultaneity of the non-simultaneous. It's apples and oranges, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we struggle. Different temporalities define different generations, social worlds, field systems, and administrative apparatuses, which counteract and mutually exclude one another rather than coexist. In the realm of new electronic communication technologies, this perspective reveals an emerging kind of social inequality driven largely by digital I could delve into that uh, a little bit longer, but I want to be even more bold in terms of something I want to say, so I'm going to move on to part four. The current state of the bullshit. <laughs> uh, when I did my doctoral work 10 years ago at the University of Warwick, or finished it up in around 10 years ago at the University of Warwick with um, John, John, John Leland, who was my PhD supervisor, I, I used the uh, framing idea of myth and mythologies, which Kelly has, has uh, developed no end, um, to talk about some of the deficits and some of the intellectual and ideological deficits or struggles that we had um, within our field, the field of drama, or the community of drama, or education, as I called it. I've moved away from mythologies today, perhaps uh, permanently, because it's no longer strong. So I've borrowed Harry Frankfurt's term, bullshit. It's a very solid intellectual idea. It's a book in case any of you have never read it. It's called On Bullshit, published by Princeton in 2005. And I want to read you a little bit from he, he, It's a genuine academic text. He develops an academic uh, thought around bullshit. The contemporary proliferation of bullshit also has deep resources. I'm quoting directly from Joe Carroll. In various forms of skepticism, which deny that we can have any reliable access to an objective reality and which therefore reject the possibility of knowing how things truly are. These anti-realist doc doctrines undermine confidence in the value of, of disinterested efforts to determine what is true and what is false. And even in the intelligibility of a notion of, a notion of objective inquiry, one response to this lack of confidence has been a retreat from the discipline required by dedication to the ideal of correctness as a, as a quite different sort of discipline which is imposed by pursuit of an alternative ideal of sincerity. Rather than seeking primarily to, to arrive at accurate representations of a common world, the individual turns towards, turn toward, turns toward trying to provide humanities, honest representations of himself. Convinced that reality has no inherent nature about which he might hope to identify as the truth about things, he devotes himself to being his own true nature. I accuse us of bullshit. I suggest that in some respects, the, the movement away from the development of new and fresh theoretical fields has led us 
into this situation where going back to Frankfurt, the ideal of correctness and you know it's, it's driven by the idea of sincerity. We are all of those things. We are firmly convinced about what we do and we are deeply sincere about it. Section five. Well, the answers don't match the questions. And this is the problem. Because my paper is not a contention that there is no longer good work going on in drama education. Far from it. You've seen, and you will hear over the course of the next few days, many examples of things far greater than anything I could ever achieve in a classroom or a studio. My contention is that some of the back office theorizing and thinking is missing, has not been done over a period of time. <coughs> the problem in this we can uh, seek an answer for in terms of Thomas Kuhn and his seminal work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, first published in 1962. Um, Kuhn's account of scientific revolution, uh, particularly his understanding of paradigms and crisis precipitating paradigm shifts, is very important in terms of my thinking. He contrasts paradigm shifts, which characterize a, a scientific revolution, right, excuse me, to the activities of normal science. So normal science are the you know the, normal science is governed by rules, a set of rules during which all operations happen within that. Um, <clears throat> something happens, a crisis, as he calls it, might necessarily be a crisis, but something happens that causes a paradigm shift, which uh, preempts and prompts the development of a new destabilizes the old paradigm and preempts the development of a new scientific a new science. Paradigm shifts arise when the dominant paradigm under which normal science operates is rendered incompatible with the new phenomenon. So things happen in the world that the old rules just don't account for, facilitating the adoption of a new theory of paradigm. Simply put, the existing science no longer provides answers to the questions which are posed up. So my rather bold contention is that our paradigmatic stance, our existing science in terms of some of our thinking in drama education is outdated is not answering the questions which 2019 are posing of it. Section six, towards renewal and reconnection in a new science. Now here's the hope of it. I'm going to argue in this final section that we actually need to engage in a process and forgive the um, dating metaphor of breaking up and then making up in order to reinvigorate the relationship between drama research and drama practice. We need a new paradigm, a new science, which is widely subscribed to. A period of normal, of, of crisis, a period of um, revolution, and then a period of normative science is required in order to allow us to again thrive as a research community, which is a priori massively important in order to enable broad modes of practice and learning. The good news is I think that the tenets of such critical work or such work are already in place. Kathleen Gallagher and Barry Freeman have talked about Prama as a mobile critical paradigm within a socially accelerated and neoliberal world and educational system. I like that idea, a mobile critical paradigm. In order to achieve that, some significant moves are required. I am very <laughs> I would argue that we need to move from the efficacious to the ensemble that the idea of togetherness is now more important than the idea of intervention. I would further argue that we need to move from the cathartic to the creative, that we need to think about the stuff coming out as good stuff, as opposed to bad stuff. I would argue that we need to think about moving from metaxis 
to the multicorporeal and multimodal, and move from the imagined reality of being in two worlds to the reality of being in more than two worlds. We need to think about moving from the living through to the living now. We need to move away from this incessant othering and exoticization with a firm look to the left and the right of who's in the room right now, and moreover, who's not in the room. The language of miraculous change that has sometimes been, sometimes been ascribed to John has irked me for years. And I think we need to move from that to a language of micro-changes. And we need to abandon any superhero tropes that can infuse the writing in our field. We ain't no Marvel characters. We need to move from the correctional to the caring. Caring is a, an idea that you usually theorized by James Thompson at the University of Manchester in recent years, as opposed to fixing things, caring for others. And here's a one that's tricky for me, given that my relationship with Jonathan Nealon's but I would argue that we need to move from a conventions-driven approach, perhaps back to the craft of what we do, and I think the art of what we do. Contentious because there's both major rifts in the past, but I think it's time we revisit that. And that we move from the passive to the performative, not always a given for some, but an essential for enabling how to act in the world and for enabling citizenship and being part of the community. And finally, I would argue that we need to move from the empathetic to the sympathetic. This is an idea that's been firmly lodged in my brain about Kelly earlier in the week. As opposed to a preoccupation with how others might feel, we need to have a firm sense of what is demanded to be human in the accelerated world in which you live. And not just, so demanded what it means to be human. And that, that, that simply is not just towards other humans, but towards our planet, which we are literally discussing as we stand. And finally, I think that our new drama education might move away from complicite, complicity to dissent. Now more than ever, we need a paradigm that encourages us. You can find Dr. Michael Finneran on Twitter at Solsithor. Slideshow horror. That's right. <laughs> I will spell that for you at S O I L S I T H E O I R. That is a Irish for illuminator. Solisthor. Slideshow horror. It's quite nice, isn't it? Well, that is all from us at The Aside. There are a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to look through those and find one that piques your interest. If you'd like to ask us a question or you have a suggestion for a future episode, please do not hesitate to contact us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening.